Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's letter from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor is an intense one. As the churches fall prey to enculturation and the compromise of the faith for the sake of inclusivism and a tolerance for sin, Jesus' words will become more and more strict. We will see today that our God is holy. His actions of discipline to his children, they speak a message to the rest of the churches. They speak a message to us today. Thanks for listening as we now turn our attention to Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira. Sometimes where we'd go out to eat uh, fast food or anywhere where they have one of those self-serve uh, drink machines, you know, with the 30 different flavors you can get. Well, um, I'm, I'm pretty a standard uh, Dr. Pepper guy. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but uh, root, root beer is uh, kind of a, a luck, lucky chance every time they happen to have that too. But my son, he'll take the cup and like a mad scientist... He will he will try a little of each one, and he's mixing the chemistry of them all together in the right proportions. And he brings that to the table, drinks it. Oh, Dad, you got to try this! Wow, <laughs> pal, what's in this? Oh, that's iced tea and Mountain Dew, is what that is, or uh, some crazy concoction. And uh, I call it swamp water or something. I mean, it's terrible. It's it, what? Uh, it's a blasphemous way of drinking soda. I tell you that. Um, there, there's, uh, there's some things that just shouldn't be mixed, right? There's just certain things that they're, they're pure the way they are. You don't need to mix them. In fact, if you do mix them, you end up losing the identity of what it was to begin with altogether. Uh, you lose the purpose. The function of it is gone. And uh, this is actually a, a lesson for something that we in the church need to be very careful with. For we live in a world that's surrounded by flavors that do not belong mixed in the church. Uh, there's a word for that. Uh, the word is called syncretism. Uh, syncretism is the combining of two different, many times, belief systems. And as they get woven together, the uniqueness of their own is completely lost by this swampiness of what is produced. Um, I would imagine that you, without much more pontificating on my end, can easily identify this danger in our world. Uh, we're going to move into the next letter that Jesus has to say to the churches in, in Asia Minor. It's the church of Thyatira. And I've entitled this message, Tolerance, Compromise, and Steadfastness. Now, this is tolerance in the worst sense. It's tolerating something that should be removed, rejected. Um, compromise is that syncretism. It's this intermingling of these two things that shouldn't belong. And when it comes to our faith, it's been handed to you. Uh, do you hear me? Not me. It's handed to you. It's not the pastor. It's, it's the church that it's been handed to. And it's incumbent upon each of us to make sure that we understand that we're rooted, the Bible says, grounded in the truth. Because I'm sure you've seen it already. You leave from this place or you, will, you walk into the world or the workplace and you will find just a buffet, a cacophony of beliefs, all pining for acceptance. The most dangerous thing that you can do and the most tempting thing that you will do is compromise on your beliefs such to pacify and not show shame or remorse. Be ashamed of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for you. That's what you will be tempted to do. And unfortunately, that is exactly what's happened at Thyatira. 
So we're in the book of Revelation chapter 2. I'd like to invite you to turn there. Um, This is the smallest of all of the churches, smallest of all the cities, even of the seven letters. It also happens to be the longest of the letters uh, to this uh, small church here now as we've moved beyond the coastline. Uh, you might recall, as we've been walking through this series, we've been through Ephesus and Smyrna. Uh, Pergamum was last week. All of those there on the, on the coastline of the Aegean. But now we move inland. Now, now we move into kind of the, the plains, in fact, to a city that's largely defenseless. Um, we'll, we'll identify some characteristics of this city. Uh, but first thing I want to do is I want to read through the passage, and then we'll talk about the city and make some observations. So starting here in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's our our email of sorts to Thyatira. Um, uh, my wife told me this past week, she said, I really am enjoying this series on the Church of the Apocalypse. And I said, I really? Uh, these are, like, just wait for this coming week because it's getting intense. And um, I, I just need to, I think, just level out Jesus' same call. Uh, you and I are going to hear messages that, uh, frankly, are not welcome in our world and that are very comfortable even for us to hear. Uh, It's my job to deliver it such that you understand it. So I'm going to shoot straight with you, but I need you to hear again Jesus' words. He who has an ear, let him hear, which basically means if you want to obey God, you will seek to find it here. But if this for you is like, yeah, that doesn't really jive with how I understand the world. It's kind of inhibiting my own loves. You know what? Then fine. Then you don't have an ear to hear. And I I can't do that for you. But that's just the challenge that I have to, to start with. This is intense material. 
And so I want to be careful as we walk through it that we understand it properly. So let's see where Thyatira is. It's located there in Asia Minor. Again, surrounded by the mountains off from the sea. In Thyatira, they were, uh, they, they were known for having uh, good metallurgy working. So uh, smiths and smelting. Um, there was, uh, in fact, a, uh, uh, they thought to believe a zinc-copper alloy that was kind of the hallmark of the workers there at Thyatira, such that when you would polish the metal, it gleamed. It almost shone like white and a brilliance to it. Um, This is just significant as we read this passage. For as Jesus describes himself, if you look here at the beginning, he says, first of all, his eyes like blazing fire. So all those who work in the smelting process know of that refining fire that will melt the ore but also his feet are like burnished bronze. Here are two illustrations that they would have understood completely in this region in this time. Um, the second thing that uh, this area was known for uh, was the origin of the city of being a military outpost. Uh, when in the country here of uh, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira was supposed to be kind of the first line of defense if ever there was an army that was going to go attack, attack the capital. Um, so it had uh, it had that in its history, this idea of there being a, uh, a military mindset to the individuals who lived there, at least in its history. And the third and the final thing that really identified Thyatira was a guild of trademen. So the workers who would come in and this city known specifically uh, for uh, mention of metal workers, as we've already heard, uh, wool workers, linen workers, those who worked in dyeing. <clears throat> in fact, we're told in the book of Acts, as Paul and his companions are making their way into Macedonia, they first encounter this individual whose name is Lydia. And uh, Lydia was from here. She was from Thyatira. And she is called a, uh, a dealer in cloth. She, in her particular linen craft, um, had a, um, uh, she was on the high end of the, of the business spectrum for she dealt in purple cloth, which was thought to be the most valuable of the time. But she's, she's uh, directly from this region. Um, they had those who worked as tanners in leatherworking, potters, bakers. Um, here's the problem with that. As you look to the Roman Empire and especially the Gentile cities, anytime you had these trade guilds, you also had gods. You got to remember the pantheon of gods came along with whatever it was that you were peddling. And so a marketplace or a commerce place, anywhere there was trade, you had with it idolatry. And so for every one of these particular workers, they would have a very nuanced form of patron deities that they would have festivals to and they would make offerings to. So everybody get the picture. You can kind of see what's going on here in the city of Thyatira. It wasn't just a great place to go and find that beautiful purple dress you always wanted. But you would also find altars. You would find festivals. You would find uh, people giving their allegiance and sacrifice to false gods. The Christians were under that type of of spiritual attack in this place, tempted every day to compromise their faith and mix it with the beliefs around them, creating a kind of syncretism, a kind of swamp water of their faith. This is what Jesus is dealing with as we get into this letter. 
And so what I want to do is I, I want to walk through just a couple of the issues that, that we talked about, see if I can explain it. Uh, I, I'm, as I explain a couple of things, we'll eventually move on to making some, uh, some final observations. The first thing I want to point out is as Jesus begins in verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. It, it's not an uh, indictment. It's, it's not a negative. Look what he says. I know your, you might uh, write in the margin, your good deeds. He lists two of them and then they get explained. The two deeds that he meant, or the two deeds that he says are your love and your faith. And you might say, well, he, he mentioned service and perseverance after that, except those are expressions of the first two. So love and faith. Love and faith. Love and faith. Everybody with me? Those are the primary expressions in Thyatira. Seen in, as he continues, service and perseverance. Everybody clear on that? How do you see love? Yeah. I mean, if you have somebody who never says, I love you, you better find it some other way, right? It has to be seen in their actions. You, you, if you've ever been in a spat with a, a spouse or someone in your family and you didn't have love going on, how would that be reflected? It's not a trick question. You know the answer. It's in your actions, right? Should I tell some stories about our, our life? No, she's shaking her head no. So, so. Uh, if, if ever that I'm upset, sometimes I don't want to look at her. Like even when we're driving in the car, does anyone else do this? Like you're driving in the car and she's sitting right there. And I could tell she's looking at me, but I'm just looking straight. I know she's looking at me. <laughs> love is seen how? It's seen in service. Love is seen in your actions. Thyatira is commended by Jesus. He says, the deeds that you guys started out with and the ones you're doing now are so much greater than what it started out. This is a church that was active in serving. It had growing ministries. They, they were vibrant here trying to reach out and serve one another. It wasn't just we're content with what we started with. We're starting a food bank. We're starting the, the next outreach. They, they had all kinds of good deeds that they were part of. So that's what love looks like. Remember the second one here was faith. Faith is seen through perseverance. So they, they are not denying Jesus Christ. They are not saying we're not Christians. They're not giving in to the demands that we saw even pressured upon some of the other churches, specifically Smyrna. Do you remember two weeks ago as we looked at the impression, uh, impression of emperor worship that was demanded upon them? Even as you heard how Polycarp was killed, being burned alive, and then stabbed with a dagger for his faith. So Thyatira is staying strong. They're staying true. They are persevering. That's the first thing I want you to notice here. <clears throat> um, as you continue on, you'll see the nevertheless in verse 20. Uh, the issue in Thyatira wasn't that they did have a growing church. They had a growing church. It wasn't that they weren't busy and serving and loving. It was that they tolerated sin. That was the problem. They tolerated sin. Jesus recounts it to an individual here. You'll see it there in verse 20. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now, it's not likely that this lady was actually named Jezebel. It's more likely that what Jesus is doing is he's using the picture of the historical Jezebel and impressing that upon this woman, saying that the same thing that Jezebel was doing is the same thing that this lady is doing. Because 
<clears throat> trust me, you wouldn't want to name your daughter Jezebel. So it's not likely that this woman's name was actually Jezebel. It's more likely that she was acting like Jezebel did. So the story of Jezebel. You've all heard of Jezebel, right? But perhaps the story is not too familiar for you. So it's in a time period where, where Israel is, is walking away from God and the king Ahaz marries Jezebel who comes from a different culture, who comes worshiping different gods, worshiping the Baals. Um, and, and we're familiar with them from the Old Testament. But as she becomes now the queen of Israel, the first thing that she does as queen is say that all of the prophets who are coming seeking to give glory and honor to the true God of Israel, you know what she does with them? She has them killed. She defies God's people. She defies God's word. And she introduces a kind of idolatry into the people of Israel, inciting them to worship false gods. Uh, Jezebel's end is one that is quite popular, actually. Um, I have it here. I'll just read through it. Uh, Jehu here becomes the king that um, deposes Ahaz. He's the new king. And here now he is coming to do away with Jezebel, as was the prophecy over him. The text says here in 2 Kings, Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? So again, he deposes the king to become the new one. Uh, Zimri is a general in Israel who killed his own king. So this is, these, are, these are what they call fighting words. As she's all dolled up. I, I, commentators, they don't agree as to why she did this. Some think that it was to be <clears throat> perhaps, perhaps sexually seductive. That some, some people think. Others think that what she was doing was preparing for her own death because she knew Jehu was coming to kill her. And so she wanted her funeral you know, to look... Oh, you know, like they say, they look so great and they're dead. But, they, you know, that was the idea. That was so their commentators aren't in agreement on why she's doing this. <clears throat> he looked up at the window and called out. Who's on my side? Who? So he, he's looking for people true to the cause of uh, true Israel that are also up there at the same time. Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Throw her down. It's a little harsh, right? Jehu said, so they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses as they trampled her underfoot. So uh, a a kind of brutality here that we're not saying, by the way, you shouldn't think that Jehu is this like, yeah, you should think, yeah, this is not maybe how it should go. So this is this is kind of the vileness that's happening within God's people at this time. So Jehu goes in and eats and drinks and then he says, take care of that cursed woman. He said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like the dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. A lot of severe readings in church this morning, right? About God's justice for what sin and the propagation of sin looks like. But here's what you need to know about Jezebel because that's what Jesus says this woman is like in Thyatira. She defied God's people. 
She defiled God's word. And she killed the prophets. You're going to see a tie in here as Jesus continues in this letter, referring to the way that Satan works with this, that I want you to see. But the thing I really want you to hold on to for the story of Jezebel is the way in which she she took the word of the prophets and did what with it? Believed it or rejected it? She rejected it. And that will lead to a kind of teaching that doesn't come from God because that was the problem with this woman. First of all, she wasn't a prophetess. Look in your Bible. See what it says in verse 20? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who what? Calls herself a prophetess. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants. The word here for servants is slaves. The idea that you and I, by virtue of Jesus Christ living in us, we serve Jesus Christ. To, to be a slave to Jesus Christ is to be called the greatest thing that you can. I, I serve him with my life or with my death. I serve him. What is this woman doing? This woman who calls herself a prophetess? She's taking these who belong to Jesus and leading them astray. Jesus actually has some very harsh words. You, you think I ran out of harsh scriptures? I got lots more coming. So we'll, we'll get to that as we work to our conclusions. A couple more things I want you to see. <clears throat> um, there is, and I don't have time to fully flesh this out, but I want to point it out to you. There is something going on here that's unique to us, actually. Uh, as the church is unfolding, uh, it's, it's made up of all Jewish people. Everybody with me? I, I, haven't, I haven't lost you, right? The very first church was made up of Jews. And what they, underst- what they thought was that in order to now become a fully realized Jewish person, or in other words, a Christian you needed to get circumcised or, in essence, become Jewish. And so people started to teach that. Well, Paul is doing, doing all this missionary work with Gentiles who are coming to faith. And he's saying, hey, they're Christians and they're not Jewish. And so we have this kind of coming to a head in Acts chapter 15. I'm just going to summarize very briefly for you. But all of the leaders at this time, they gather together and they evaluate. All right, what should we do? Should we impose upon the Christians the law of Moses? Like the Jews held. You got to keep all of these laws. You got to do all these things. And then you can be a Christian. And the decision that they, uh, they came to. And you know what? Let's turn there together. Just go back to Acts chapter 15. I'll read it for you because I want you to see how it combines with what's going on in the Gentile city of of Thyatira. Acts chapter 15. Page 1575 in the Pew Bibles. You can see uh, verse 5. Just uh, get some context here. He says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised. And required to obey the law of Moses. That's, that's, what's, that's the issue right here. The leaders all get together and they're, they're talking about this. Uh, look at verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas finished, look at verse 13. James spoke up. James is kind of like the path, the main pastor there in Jerusalem. Um, He described how God had first showed his concern by taking from among the Gentiles a people for himself. Jump down to verse 19, because here's where I want you to see. Verse 19, this is the conclusion. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to 
Abstain from food polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and blood. If you jump over to verse 29, you'll see the full decree here. It says, you are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. What were the two things this Jezebel prophetess was inciting the servants of God to do? Did you, do you remember? Eat the food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Um, it's no coincidence that the two things that by the Spirit's leading, the Gentiles were to avoid, essentially a pollution of your heart and your mind and a pollution of your body. That's it. You, you, you want to call Jesus your Lord? Here, here's what we're asking. I'm not asking anything more of this. Do not pollute your heart. Do not pollute your mind. Do not pollute your body. You, you will do really well to obey those commands. Those two things. So the, don't get lost on the blood and the strangled animals. Those are all acts within this false temple worship. Remember the trade guilds in Thyatira? All of these pagan sacrifices and uh, feasts. That's what they would do. They would do these wicked practices of strangling animals, pouring out blood, drinking blood. All of this pagan worship. God says, don't pollute your heart and your mind with that type of thing. Stay away from that type of thing. And as far as sexual immorality goes, stay as far away from it as you can. So this, uh, this, this connection for God's command that starts in Acts chapter 15 is the exact place where Satan, through this Jezebel woman, is putting his, his arrow and his aim to attack on those things. So this moves us here. If you, if you jump ahead a little bit in the teaching, you'll see, as Jesus says in verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira, who don't hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I want to, I just want to address that real quick. Is that, is that a curious phrase to anybody else in here? Satan's deep secrets. Um, I want you to see, first of all, the progression in these letters. Uh, Smyrna had a, what was called a synagogue of Satan. Do you remember Pergamum from last week? Whose throne was in Pergamum? Satan's throne. That's like where he lived well, now, Thyatira gets even worse. Now you have what, what would be maybe at uh, Smyrna, like you're on the edge of it. You can see where he's gathering, but you're not really part of it. You have the oppression. And then in Pergamum, you've got his throne and his rule is there. But now in Thyatira, you have the deep secrets of Satan. Um, commentators, they're not sure what to make of that either. Um, they... Uh, some have said that it was the idea that you, you could have this licentiousness in your living so that you could indulge in Satan's things in order to battle Satan. And I thought, I feel like you guys are stretching it with that. I, I actually think Satan's deep secrets are right in line with what Jezebel was doing. What did Jezebel do with God's word? Receive it or reject it? She rejected it. And that resulted in two things. A pollution of your heart and your mind through worshiping in idolatry and a pollution of your body with sexual immorality. You remember back in the garden, Satan's deep secrets. I think Satan's deep secrets is simply this. It's the way Satan works within God's people. Satan's deepest secret is this. You with me? Everybody with me right now? Satan's deep secret is trying to convince you sin is not sin. Catch it? I think that's what Satan's deep secret is here. To try to convince you sin is not sin. Sin. And hear me now, you live in America. 
You live in a world predicated on the pursuit of happiness. It's in our constitution. Happiness, however, for so many people is denied by true happiness and instead is found in a wovenness of the darkness of human desire. They have a false kind of happiness. So it's justified in our world. People who take what God had said, don't participate in idolatry. Don't participate in sexual immorality. And our world today is just, it's not idolatry. It's not sexual immorality. The word here used for immorality, if you look back in verse 20, I think in 21 as well, it shows up twice. Sexual immorality, and then in the NIV it's just translated as immorality. It's the word in Greek, and I have it up here on the screen, um, uh, pornea. Pornea is, uh, is the word that he's using. Here's what pornea means. Illicit sexual intercourse, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, sexual intercourse with close relatives, sexual intercourse with a divorced man or woman. It's essentially any version of sexual intimacy that is not bound under the covenant of marriage. That's it. That's what the word pornea means. I wonder if for a bonus point, can anyone know what English word we get from the Greek word pornea? Yeah, so that ought to give you some insight here as to the idea of what we're referring to. It's a pollution of your bodies and Satan's deep secret. You ready? You want to know what it is? It's to convince you that the pebble in your shoe can stay there. It's to convince you that sin really isn't sin at all. Jezebel was doing this, taking God's people and leading them, misleading them, the Bible says, to do things that God has forbidden. All right, I think I've got just one more thing and let's work on Then we'll get to some observations. The, the last here has to do with the, um, the reward that comes at the end. Verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces of the party. This comes from Psalm 2. <clears throat> We're going to look at that just a little bit in a little bit. But it's the word rule here that I want you to see. Originally in Psalms, it's written in Hebrew and it does mean to rule. But now here it's actually translated with a different word in Greek that means to shepherd. Um, I, I think that would be really helpful if you're making notes in your Bible under, uh, above the word rule, put the word shepherd. It's the, it's the verb poiomen. It means to care for, to protect, to shepherd. And there's, there's a reason why I think this is important for us to see is because the true reward here isn't you ruling, but it's you ruling with Jesus. And how does God rule us? Like a, you all tracking with me? That's how God rules us. What does a shepherd do for his sheep? Someone say, kick them? Yeah, a shepherd protects the sheep. He, he leads them to green pastures. He, he leads them beside what kind of waters? Tumultuous hurricane one? No, these still water. That's what a shepherd does. That is the kind of rule that Jesus does for us. And so the reward here is ruling with Jesus. All right, y'all with me? Let's go some conclusions here. Number one, good deeds are threatened by false teachings. Good deeds are threatened by false teachings. Uh, true or false? Thyatira had a growing church. True or false? True. Uh, true or false? Thyatira was doing more now than they did before. True, right? They had good deeds. But look at verse 20, because the very first, what's the first word you have there in verse 20? That, 
That's a stinky word, isn't it? Nevertheless. That, that, that's like, you know, you were doing good, but nevertheless, because what corrupts good deeds? False teachings. It won't take you long to find this. If you just glance down, you'll notice uh, it's not just Jezebel. It's not just her. It's not just this one prophetess. It's her teaching. Do you notice that? It's her teaching that leads them astray. Uh, this comes out of Second Peter. Peter's giving a warning to the church. He says, but there will all... There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct. Depraved conduct is what? It's action, right? Everybody with me? It's... it's, And it will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they make up. Their condemnation has not been long hanging over them. Their destruction has not long been sleeping. Good deeds are threatened by false teaching. Here's observation number two I want to give you about teaching. Teachings lead to beliefs. And beliefs lead to action. I want want you to know, as we're talking through the severity of this, because this, uh, right? I mean, these were some heavy verses this morning. It's not a condemnation that starts with their actions. They're actually commended for their actions. But the source of a destruction of actions goes tied right to beliefs. You will do whatever you believe to be right. Well, how'd you get that belief? Because your belief is founded upon what? The teachings that are there. This is why it's so important in the church. That those who lead are trained, that they have passed through a period of instruction so they can hold to God's word with conviction, without question. Because teachings lead to beliefs, beliefs lead to actions. You can see this again, verse 20, it's by her teaching that she misleads them. And if you jump over to verse 24, you'll see, um, as he says, now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to what? Her teachings. That was the issue. The problem was false teachings. Uh, Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples, he says that there will be false teachers who are going to come, and he says they will lead even the little ones astray, those who don't know any better. He will lead them astray. This is Jesus' words following that in Matthew 18. He says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. That's called a teacher. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, what's stumble here? Is stumble a teaching or an action? Do you see the connection? The teachings come first. They lead to beliefs, and the beliefs produce actions. He says, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. We need to be very careful with teachings. Uh, that was the problem in Thyatira, and that's a, that's a current problem in the church of the world today. Number three, God is holy and will not tolerate immorality and idolatry. Uh, as he even describes himself in verse 19, he, or 18, he says that his eyes are like a blazing fire. The picture of God's holiness as a refining fire. Um, his actions here for sin, and you might have caught it in verse 21, 
he gave her time to repent, but she's unwilling. So verse 22, God's intolerance of her. Did you catch it? He will throw her onto a bed of suffering. Uh, I think, and commentators pretty much agree on this, bed here is used as a metonymy for that sexual immorality. It's used as, so, so she was sinning on a bed? She will suffer where? On a bed. Um, you, you, will get, you will get what your, uh, your deeds deserve, or, or God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And we even see a little bit later in the passage, verse 23, if you look there with me, the end of it says, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And so, yes, that's, that's what will suffer. Anyone who commits idolatry, or I'm sorry, adultery with her will also suffer intensely. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Whew, that's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, the command here to, to kill children, like we read in Ezekiel, or here, God saying he'll kill children. Um, first of all, God can take life and give life. It's all his to give. It's not wrong when God does it. It's wrong for us to do. It's not wrong for God to do it, but I don't actually think that's what this means. I think children here is symbolic of those who propagate her teaching. Everybody with me on that? I, I, it'd be fine if this is children, as if Jezebel actually had little babies and God's going to kill them. He could do that. It's up to God to do that. I don't think that's what this means, though. I think this is a warning to all those who believe this Jezebel and carry on her teachings and spread them. Yeah, God will destroy them because God is holy. and He will not tolerate immorality. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, flee from sexual immorality. That's the word pornea. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own? This is also what he says in chapter 3. He says, Do you not, or don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, what will he do? God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So, Everybody with me on this? Number three, here's a big one. God is holy. God does not tolerate sin. Number four, God sees the motives behind your actions. He searches hearts and minds. You'll see that in verse 23 again. The punishment and judgment of God is such that all the churches will know God is the one who sees the motives. He searches our hearts and minds. I have this passage from the book of Hebrews speaking of God's word. Uh, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Yeah, I bet that's why people don't want to read the Bible. Right? The, the word of God. If it will lay bare the motives of your heart. Whew, I'm feeling hot in here. Are you guys feeling hot in here? This is what God's word does. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I could have turned to six other passages to show the same thing. To make the point and stress it to you, God knows our motives. Look, you might be fooling your spouse. You might be fooling your parents. You might be even fooling yourself. Who aren't you fooling? You're not fooling God. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. And he's holy. Number five, uh, the commands of God are not burdensome. Uh, If you look a little bit further in in verse 24, he says, "I, I will not impose 
any other burden on you. The, the two things that were given at the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, I haven't lost you guys, right? You remember what they were? Don't eat meat sacrificed to idol. I did lose you already, right? Acts chapter 15. Don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols, right? Don't pollute your mind and your heart. And don't do what with your body. And that's it. That was it. He says, I'm not going to put anything else over you. So the commands of God are not burdensome. This is what Jesus himself says, Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. God doesn't put this crazy list of rules over you. The things that he's requesting for the church to do are for your good. They will, they will help you pursue happiness. True happiness if you obey them. Command of God's are not burdensome. Number six, God is giving you time to repent. This is exactly what he did for Jezebel. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent, but she's unwilling. Uh, after he says uh, that he, the, the punishment, I'll cast her on a bit of suffering. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent. So what is God doing for them? Giving them what? He's giving them time. What's God giving you today? Anybody have a pebble in their shoe today? Anybody come to church saying, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. That's a deep secret of Satan. You taking sin and calling sin fine is exactly what he tried to do in the garden with Adam and Eve. Do you remember the words of the evil one? Did God really say? What's he questioning? God's word, right? There it is. That's just what Jezebel did. And then he straight up lies to her. You will not surely die if you do exactly what God told you not to do. He's trying to take sin and not make it sin. That, that is a deep type of secret of Satan and his agenda. But God's giving you time. Lastly, number seven, God, God's reward is you ruling with him. You saw this again in verse 27. It comes from Psalm 2. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them with pieces uh, to pieces like pottery. I want you to see whose job this really is. So two verses really quick. Revelation chapter 12. Speaking of Jesus, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will, Psalm 2, will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And again, a little later in Revelation 19, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Uh, this would have made good sense to the folks in Thyatira. They were like a mining community. They knew what iron was. They got this idea. But remember, rule here is a kind of pastoral rule. Not only will you rule with Jesus, but you are given Jesus. The very last part here says in verse 28, I will also give them the morning star. Revelation 22 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. If you overcome, if you obey God's word, if you have an ear to hear today, the reward to you is you will rule with Jesus. You will be given Jesus. You want that? That's right there for you. If you overcome, if you have an ear to hear, overcoming as well, I just need to point this out and I'll do it in a second later. If you, if you look at verse 26, there's a condition. It's the only one that has a condition, by the way. Every other time in these letters it says overcome, it doesn't say what it says to Thyatira. But look with me, verse 26, to him who overcomes and what? Do you have obedience there? All right, I want to say it's a little warm in here, right? It was tough verses. Don't let me lose you guys. I'm wrapping up now, all right? We track with me just a little bit further here. Overcoming means 
You're doing God's will. It's an action. It flows from right teaching. And so let me give you what to do. Here's how we need to obey this. Number one, hold on. This is Jesus' message to the church. Look with me again in verse 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Verse 25, only hold on to what you have. Do you know what that word is? Steadfastness. Have you ever, have you ever known somebody in, in life like that that just is true, just is faithful? They hold on to their character. They hold on to what they believe. That's what we're talking about here. I want to give you three ways of doing that, all right? Because just me saying, hold on, uh, might not be as helpful as me saying, here's a couple ways you can do that. Number one, take God seriously. It's kind of a serious topic we're we're looking at here. You need to understand, this is is important stuff we're talking about. Number two, you need to be able to discern false teachings. If if you're just believing anything you hear, guess what? Are you going to hold on? Nope. You're, you're, you're going to let go and grab this over here. You're going to have a swamp water type of understanding of faith. Number three, you need to begin to practice what you preach. An illustration that I would use for this, the idea of holding on, I'm right now coaching the fifth and sixth grade football team in Kingsford. So I got, I, I got some illustrations for you with this, right? The, the idea of taking God seriously is when we tell these kids when they're carrying the football, what is rule number one? Protect the ball. Protect the ball, right? So take it seriously, right? Um, next thing is they have to know how to tuck their shoulder to take a hit. And in order to do that, they have to be aware of the defenders. That's number two up there, right? You need to be able to discern false teaching. You not only just take it seriously, you got to know where the attacks are coming from to be prepared. And number three, we just don't write the plays on paper. What do we do? We practice it. And 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 we practice it. Get the, this is a pretty simple illustration. I think we can all understand this, right? Take God seriously. Be aware of the false teachings that are out there and then do it, do it, do it, do it. And if you do those three things, I believe that you will be holding on. Um, There is so much more I could say, but just for sake of time, let's move on to the second one. And that is to repent. Repent. Here's what I have to help you with that. Be specific and be genuine. Jesus himself said, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. If you're going to repent, you need to be specific for what that is. And you need to be genuine. Remember, verse 23, I'll strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches, what was it again? Hearts and, yeah. Is it going to do you any good to repent and be like, yeah, pastor said to repent at church. I repent! (laughs) But it ain't genuine? You fooling fooling God? No. No. You know, this has to be something that comes and flows from your heart. And here's, I want to end on this. You won't know how to do this. In fact, you will be ultimately like Thyatira, because I am very sad to say Thyatira didn't do this. Thyatira today is found in the, um, uh, the Turkish city of Askahar. And today there's more than 100,000 people living in Askahar. There's contemporary apartments and buildings that line the street. There's buses and cars. But you know what there isn't in Askahar? There isn't a church there. 100,000 people and there's no church. 
we will end up being just like them if we're not doing this correctly. And you won't understand how to do this unless you see God as that loving shepherd. That loving shepherd who's waiting and wanting you to return. Uh, Donna asked the kids if any of them were perfect. What did they say? These little children who understand sin. And even like my little, little daughter, I don't know if your uh, kids or grandkids are like this, but when my daughter does something that's wrong, which is often, she also turns herself in. I did what I did. She knows it's not right. You're not fooling God. You could be fooling someone else, but you're not fooling God. But God is there with loving arms. Will you pray with me?